Yes. So, um, well, thank, thank you, first of all, for inviting me to, to speak on this, uh, this topic. Um, the, the presentation is, uh, is uh, to a large extent, based on uh, a paper that was published two years ago, just on, under two years ago. Um, in the writing of the paper, although I, I did research a wider context of material, including, including some material that was more practice-oriented, and I did consider... Uh, venturing out into more of that territory, but in the end I decided to make it fairly focused on, on an academic part. Uh, and then we can throw it open to discuss uh, the, um, the consequences or implications for practice, because basically I think you know, I'm not going to be standing here giving answers for practice. I'm going to maybe be giving uh, some answers from academia, if you like, that pose questions for practice, if you like. Anyway, I'm sure we can have all sorts of questions and answers um, at the end, uh, as, as we see fit. Uh, so let me just uh, start this uh, timepiece. Okay, so uh, the talk is called uh, Urban Design Beyond Pseudoscience. Um, and in case you're thinking, well, how, how, does this, how does urban design even relate to pseudoscience? How did we get into all this? Um, and I suppose um, I found myself uh, reading uh, a passage from Thomas Kuhn as it happens. Uh, which I'll just read out because it's a kind of long quotation. Uh, you know, astrology was not a science. Instead, it was a craft, one of the practical arts, uh, with close resemblances to engineering and medicine. Uh, in each of these fields, shared theory was only adequate to establish the plausibility of the discipline and to provide a rationale for the various craft rules which govern practice. And when I was reading this and subsequent passages, which I'm not going to read out, um, uh, Basically, he was talking about astrology, and some other writers were talking about astrology within the context of the philosophy of science. And it struck me, in a way, that although they, although they were talking about astrology, some of the things they were referring to sounded suspiciously a bit like uh, some of the things that we encounter in urban design and planning. Uh, and it got me thinking, you know, what, are, what parallels there might be between um, uh, pseudosciences and urban design. Uh, which is really just a, a background to, to how, how I got, got into this uh, and just to draw attention to the fact that the link here is actually through practice and, and craft and the role of theory in supporting that. Uh, so although uh, you know, pseudoscience is within the philosophy of sciences is a rather arcane, abstruse topic, um, it actually deals with uh, uh, you know, practitioners are actually part of this and, and the role for practice and in fact, the role for theory, and do we need theory? Uh, you know, what, what is the point of urban design theory if it doesn't inform urban design practice? Uh, which is another question raised, I suppose. So as I say, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be uh, based in outline on, on, on this paper, uh, Science, Pseudoscience and Urban Design, which is published in Urban Design International. It is available free online, and Robert helpfully provided a link, I think, directly from the from the, um, the, the publicity for this event. I was assuming that not everyone would have immediately gone and read the paper, so I hope I'm not duplicating too much in, 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 in presenting some of the material, but I thought it was quite, uh, I, thought, I thought this was the best way of, of, of doing it. So I've got a selective outline of the paper messages, plus additional comments and reflections uh, relating to uh, practice. So in, in terms of uh, what I'm actually going to talk about, a, a little bit about background, a little bit about science and pseudoscience, and then the middle part of the paper I'll be uh, uh, examining some uh, urban design theories, 
um, and then asking is urban design a pseudoscience uh, and then think considering how we could go beyond uh, pseudoscience as it were. So uh, background, um, so none other than Jane Jacobs, uh, one of the most quoted uh, urbanists I suppose, uh, has a famous quote about the, the pseudoscience of bloodletting uh, which she writes to the pseudoscience of city rebuilding and planning. Years of learning and a plethora of subtle and complicated dogma have arisen on a foundation of nonsense. And it's still quite a nice quote today, and it still, I think, it prompts us to wonder, you know, if our urban design theories and planning are, are, are still based on uh, subtle and complicated dogma, and if they're still arisen on a foundation of nonsense. Um, following that, I also read around this time uh, um, Alexander Cuthbert's uh, paper um, on it, which you can see written down there, Urban Design uh, Requiem for an Era Review and Critique of the Last 50 Years, in which he almost single-handedly uh, demolishes or dismantles traditional urban design theory over this period, 50 years, criticising it for being in a, uh, anarchic and insubstantial. So, uh, you know, basically, um, uh, you know, I guess if you were one of those theorists, uh, you might not be too happy because uh, uh, basically he's saying basically that urban design theory is a bit rubbish. Um, so, uh, and yet, you know, we go on using it, we, we teach it, we, we, some of us uh, uh, theorise, including practitioners and academics, come up with theories and, and, and so on. Um, so it's a challenge. I mean, Cuthbert's paper is a challenge to the profession and, uh, you know, if anyone hasn't read it, uh, it's quite a long paper, but I would recommend having a look at it. Uh, if, if, you were, if you were interested in how someone could actually manage to sum up 50 years of urban design theory and say, and say that it's uh, uh, not very good. So if you, want, if you want a challenging read. Is he an architect or a planner? Um, uh, he is, I think he studied uh, uh, urban design, um, but he also has an interest in social science. Uh, I think he's done more than one thing. I couldn't quote you exactly. Where? In the US? Um, well, uh, the, 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 sorry? UNSW. UNSW. Uh, New South Wales in, in Australia. But I, I mean, that's not to say he, he didn't, he, he's been other places, right? Um, well, I've studied from him at that time. He was there. And okay. He was a okay. So. <laughs> sorry. Okay, so th thanks for that uh, factual update. Okay. Um, Sorry to interrupt you. Okay. So, um, so he says urban design is no external standard of criticism. It complements or addresses uh, its internal fractures and inconsistencies. He says so. Um, so this investigation, I thought could take science as the external standard of criticism and try and see how urban design might uh, measure up uh, from a, looking at it from a, some kind of scientific pr perspective. So, science and pseudoscience. Uh, I'm not going to go into the whole of the history of science, obviously. Uh, the question of what is or isn't science is as old as science itself. Um, you know, science isn't a single monolithic thing, and you'll get scientists arguing about what science is as well as um, uh, but the main point, I suppose, is not so much a body of knowledge uh, as a system of establishing a body of knowledge. So, in a way, it's a, w a way of thinking and a, and a way of uh, thinking how we um, 
create knowledge. And if you're thinking, well, what's pseudoscience come in? Well, just as illness can throw light on health, so uh, pseudoscience can eliminate science. Uh, and I, I found the pseudoscience perspective an interesting way of, of looking at this, because it's very easy to say, well, how scientific is urban design, or should we have more science, and so on. It's very easy to say, well, it's, we, we could do with more science. But when we bring in the concept of pseudoscience, it really, I think, forces us to question, is this really good enough? Is what we're doing really uh, good enough uh, uh, of itself? Uh, you know, if there's any danger of the taint of pseudoscience, as it were. So pseudoscience could be uh, laid against, the charge of pseudoscience can be laid against um, individuals, uh, particular theories, or a field as a whole. Uh, I'm going to be concentrating on the, on the last of these. Uh, my purpose wasn't to pick holes in individuals or their theories, although um, we end up having to look at uh, some individuals and theories in order to understand how the field as a whole incorporates them and, and uses them. Uh, so in a brief summary, four ways of being pseudoscientific. So the first one is where you're being a, a theory or it could be disingenuous, fraudulent or deliberately manipulative. So perhaps a, a quack medicine or something where the, the person knows it's not true but is trying to pass it off as being scientific. Um, something that's far-fetched or fundamentally implausible, flying in the face of known evidence. So uh, perhaps we could agree that the flat earth theory might fit into that one. Um, uh, a third way would be a sort of post hoc justification for a form of practice that could proceed even without the theory. Um, so I should just say the first two I'm not accusing urban design theory of being in the first two categories. But there could be an element of this, this third one here. So this is um, where theory is kind of used as a justification for practice, um, where theory which is plausible and practically useful, even if the practitioner doesn't understand why it works, or no one understands why it works. I should say the theoretician might not know how it works. And even if it doesn't in fact necessarily work with any degree of confidence, but theories could be useful to have around to help, to help us um, uh, do stuff. Um, and Cuthbert asserts that key theories such as Alexander and Kevin Lynch uh, define urban problems in their own manner and, and share almost nothing in common. Well, that can be, uh, we can argue about that. Um, but in a sense, it's as if the urban designer has a, if we apply it to urban design, it's, it would sort of have a theoretical bag of tricks and they can go in uh, and sort of rummage around in it and bring out some Alexandrian theory and try and make that work. And if that doesn't work, then go back in and, and try a Lynchian theory and see if that works as well. Um, so uh, there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with trial and error as such, except that uh, theory is supposed to be a substitute for it, uh, one could argue. Um, and I suppose the problem is that perhaps both theories can't be right. Um, uh, you, know, not, not you can have any number of urban design theories, but we don't necessarily know which ones are right. And yet we tend to retain them all, or both of them or all of them. Uh, we tend to keep them in reserve in case we could find them handy to, to, to justify some uh, decision. Um, so it could imply that urban design, uh, the urban design doesn't have a coherent set of principles. Um, it will always be possible, in a sense, to find a theory uh, to support a given solution uh, to a given problem. Uh, and the fourth way is um, that the, the, the fourth way of being pseudoscientific could be that the treatment appears to be scientific, but it doesn't measure up to being scientific in, in some, some way or other that is uh, uh, described there. And this is the, the area that we're going to look into. I'm going to look into in more detail. So, for example, symptoms of pseudoscience, something may contain lots of information. Uh, it may have apparent uh, explanatory power. 
Uh, it may seem to generate an incessant stream of confirmations. Um, uh, but, uh, and this is, this is talking about, uh, uh, sorry, I should just explain, this is part of a philosophy of science, trying to work out what kinds of sciences are real sciences and which are pseudosciences. But where theories are fabricated only in order to accommodate known facts, and also, and I read this, this I draw attention again to this quotation because it, it refers to practitioners. So this is referring to scientists in a sense. Um, the community of practitioners makes little attempt to develop the theory towards solutions of outstanding problems and shows no concern for attempts to evaluate the theory in relation to others uh, and is selective in considering confirmations and disconfirmations. And again, when I was reading this, again in a philosophy of science context, it made me think, about urban design and if, the, if this might be in some way applicable to urban design. Uh, so this guy, uh, uh, Bunge, suggests that uh, pseudosciences are stagnant pools on the side of the swift current of uh, scientific research and that theory should be denounced if it fails to evolve into a fully-fledged component of science at the end of, say, half a century. So that sounds like a challenge. So, you know, let's see, uh, uh, can, can we apply this to urban design or can we put urban design uh, to the test. So let's look at urban design theory. I'm going to go uh, a little uh, quickly over this part here. But in the paper, I was mainly concerned with what I called an integrated theory, uh, not just a, a theory, but one particular thing, like, uh, like some aspect of vegetarian or light, uh, veg uh, veget vegetation or lighting, um, but more a, a, an integrated theory that is, is of the following kind. One which uh, may be said to combine an insight into how the world works, which implies knowledge, factual knowledge um, of a scientific nature. Also a stance on how the world ought to be, uh, because we're talking about design, we're talking about a future state that doesn't currently exist. Um, and also a, a way of getting from uh, one to the other. So in a sense, some of the classic urban design theories of the kind I'm looking at combine these, these three uh, elements. Uh, and this, di this distinction between how the world is and how the world ought to be was one pointed out by David Hume. Um, so urban here, uh, I've already... Uh, oh, the other thing is that urban design theory, in, in a sense, um, can be used to justify, in a sense, the, the status of urban design as an intellectual discipline. So in the way that, I guess, uh, you could say that architecture originally, it, was the, it, was, it has been said that... Uh, the invention of architectural theory allowed architect to architecture to be not just a craft discipline but to become more of a, an intellectual uh, discipline. So the presence of theory perhaps can help urban design in that way. And in this sketch, I, I, sort of, uh, uh, I, I suggest urban design theory is a kind of platform uh, that's sort of, uh, grounded somehow in science uh, but upon which the art of, or, or practice of urban design may take place. So the art of uh, practice in urban design uh, can be founded on some kind of urban design theory, uh, which in turn is, may have a scientific un underpinning. Um, so the integrated theories that I'm talking about here today uh, combine the combination of the is, how the world is, how the world ought to be, and how to get from here to there. And therefore, as such, they go beyond uh, scientific knowledge. So I'm not saying that urban design is only about science. They certainly go beyond it. Um, uh, but they're not just normative, artistic, or political uh, manifestos, um, but they are, un they are intending to be underpinned by knowledge about the world as it is, in other words, uh, scientific knowledge. Okay, so, uh, so let's look at some examples. 
so I looked at uh, four examples of uh, classic uh, works which uh, extend to 50 or so years old uh, uh, so that we're sure that we're, they really are classics uh, and that they are well regarded uh, and they're not just a flash in the pan. So we have Image of the City by Kevin Lynch, uh, the Townscape by Gordon Cullen, uh, the essay uh, or paper, A City's Not a Tree by Christopher Alexander, and of course, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. The latter two could, be, could ar arguably be called planning theory texts. Uh, and of course, you could talk about science, pseudoscience, science and planning if you wanted. It's just it would take longer because there are probably more planning text to uh, wade through and not necessarily as pleasant either. So uh, I maybe leave that one to someone else. So analysis. Uh, so well I guess people here know uh, about Lynch's classic work, uh, The Image of the City, he talks about issues such as imageability and legibility and brings in mental mapping um, to, uh, to understand the perception of urban form. Um, but essentially, in a sense, one could distill his key pre pre proposition into three parts. Firstly, the city has a public image uh, that is held by the citizens. That this image can be uh, classified into five types of elements, you know, classic paths, edges, districts, nodes, uh, and landmarks. Uh, and also that these elements may be useful as building blocks for the urban designer. Uh, so there's an element there of, of how the world is and also how, how the world could be used or how the theory could be used towards building urban design from. Uh, so when I came to, so, I mean, we all read these things, I suppose, uh, some time ago when, in our education. Uh, and we can then revisit them. And, and, and so I, I revisited them and looked at them in, uh, in, in more detail. So I tried to look at, uh, for example, what was the original scientific footing of, of the book? And when you re look at it closely, you find that it was done on the basis of a small pilot study. Um, the, the finding, many of the findings are tentative, and Lynch carefully puts in appropriate caveats. Um, it was also informed by the social science literature. Um, but uh, the historian uh, Rainsford claims that, uh, that uh, in effect, claims that Lynch had urbanistic ideas about this before, about what the elements were, but then sort of hid, hid their origins and sort of made out as if they came from some social science, um, you know, so, social scientific inspiration. Uh, so there, there is a scientific uh, angle there. In terms of the subsequent validation, I tracked through uh, what had been, uh, how, how it's been used. Um, there was partial positive confirmation of, of the use of the five elements. Um, Alternative elements I didn't find to any significant extent being investigated, and, and I didn't find uh, uh, any particular overall testing or validation of the overall linked hypothesis of the proposition of the, the, the existence of an image in, in, the, in, in the public uh, mind uh, going through to building blocks of urban design. And in terms of subsequent use, uh, as it's referred to in the urban design literature, um, generally, there's an uncritical affirmation, um, as if the findings in it were factually established. Um, and it was also, also the literature generally doesn't tend to reflect the existence of the subsequent testing. So the papers that I, uh, well, one of the papers, for example, Aragonis and Aradondo that I checked, which is a very interesting paper, incidentally, um, uh, you know, very, very it seems to appear very little in the in their, our subsequent urban literature. Like everyone always tends to cite the, the one the original classic uh, work. And of course, we're all guilty of doing these things, right? Um, 
Okay, so the second one was Cullen's Timescape. Um, this, of course, wasn't one that was particularly attempting to be scientific, um, uh, but nevertheless, uh, it, it has a sort of hypothesis of sorts that places are con that are consciously composed can give a better experience than those whose components are placed separately. At least we could express that as some kind of hypothesis. Um, and of course, this could be said to be a core justification for urban design. Um, the, the, the way that we compose spaces and places um, uh, 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 is, is more advantageous the way we do it. So, looking at the scientific footing, uh, well, this work was mainly based on personal experience. Um, the arguments tend to be pre presented as assertions of fact or speculations. Um, and as I say, this, this book wasn't, wasn't, was consciously not attempting to be a, a scientific uh, uh, basis as such. Um, there's been partial positive confirmation of, of, of some of this, um, uh, but no, I, I couldn't find any overall testing or validation uh, of the overall linked hypothesis um, of, of the, the, the power of the collective composition over the, the individual. Of course, all these statements I'm making could be falsified or someone could find an example, a contrary example, but at least it's worth, I think, putting these ideas out there. At least they can be tested. And in the subsequent use in the urban design literature, um, sometimes criticised for uh, being normative, uh, like he's too picturesque, uh, a lack of attention uh, to testing of core, but I find a la lack of attention uh, to testing of core underlying premises. Uh, so that was um, um, Cullen. Uh, so, I mean, there's a pattern here. So with Alexander City is not a tree. Uh, there's a structural distinction between uh, traditional and planned cities in a nutshell. Uh, this difference, he suggests, uh, helps to explain why planned cities fail to reproduce the qualities of, uh, the good qualities of traditional cities. Uh, and he also puts in this idea that this dysfunctional structure arises because there's a kind of cognitive constraint on our ability to conceptualize um, uh, the, the, the complexity of the structure of traditional uh, cities with their overlapping structures in a single mental act. I mean, this is obviously a summary of the, of the, the, of, of the theory in a nutshell. So uh, Alexander's paper, of course, he was trained in, in, in mathematics. Uh, it has a mixture of set theory and graph theory in it. Uh, he also alludes to earlier psychological research. Um, but the way the paper proceeds is, is largely... Uh, a sort of argument by analogy and also thought experiments where he invites the reader to consider you know, do you find it uh, difficult to conceive of this in a single mental act? Um, subsequent validation. Um, well, the idea that a city is a semilattice, which he went on to, to argue, has been challenged by uh, Harari and Rocky in 1976. Um, and I did try and track down whether the, 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 the cognitive constraint hypothesis um, had ever been uh, proven or, or even tested, but I could, uh, I drew a, a cold trail. I couldn't find any, any evidence that that had ever been followed up. Uh, in the urban, urban design literature itself, again, it tends to be cited approvingly. Uh, the one exception is rarely cited. Um, uh, and as I say, the, the, and the lack of validation of the cognitive uh, hypothesis remains unremarked. I would add in also uh, I did give a presentation to do with Alexander uh, not so long ago uh, where I alluded to this uh, and uh, got quite an emotional defense of Alexander from the audience um, uh, and uh, 
I mean, no, I think, I think one or two people were, were, were interested in, in the scientific aspect, but all, most people who, who raised questions were, were more interested in defending Alexander than actually asking whether what Alexander ever said was actually true or not. That was, that was the context. Uh, anyway, that's, that's what happened. Okay, so finally, of the four texts, we have the de Death and Life of Great American Cities, which probably needs no introduction. Um, nevertheless, I was uh, quite uh, intrigued to find or, or um, be reminded that in the middle of this book, which is probably regarded as a sort of polemic, polemical narrative um, uh, or work, qualitative work or a work of humanities and planning, um, that actually there's a hypothesis in the middle of, of the book. Um, and she says... Uh, you know, to something like this, to generate exuberant diversity in a city's streets and districts, four conditions are indispensable. Um, and these are the four conditions. Now, the four conditions themselves are quite well known, probably. Um, the district should serve more than one primary function, blocks should be short, uh, the age and condition of buildings, um, and the density of people. But actually, I was struck on rereading this how, how uh, very particularly she said that this was a, a definite hypothesis which, uh, in which all four conditions had to be present in, in order for it to, be, to work. And she also explicitly said it was a hypothesis that could and should be tested. Um, so uh, in terms of the, the original scientific footing, uh, the book does contain a mixture of personal observation, anecdote, and so on. Um, however, it does have a scientific or proto-scientific frame of mind. As I say, she's got the hypothesis in there. And sceptical testing is explicitly invited. You know, she says, let's test this, uh, and if I'm wrong, let's correct it and let's move on. Uh, and so what happened? Well, well nothing much happened uh, in, on that front. In fact, uh, this guy, uh, uh, Weicker, John Weicker, um, wrote a paper about 10 years later, uh, noting that nothing had been tested in the pre preceding 10 years. Uh, so he thought he may as well go and test something. And uh, so he, uh, well, he, uh, he, he converted Jacob's hypothesis into, a, uh, into an equation or two, uh, and uh, invented some variables, uh, plugged them into equations, did some empirical research, etc., 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 um, and uh, you know, enough to scare off uh, uh, the average urban design reader, probably, uh, uh, and um, and came up with some answers. So, and what he found was, uh, he found little evidence to support Jacob's uh, hypothesis, except on points where there is, where she was re repeating well-known facts that were, uh, in other words, where there's no disagreement between her and orthodox uh, city planning. So. Um, uh, when it came to subsequent validation then, uh, there was limited testing of the main hypothesis. A couple of people did try it and found it uh, refuted. Um, another person in 1987 found some support. Uh, this is, but that's about all I could find on that particular issue of the testing of the four, um, uh, the four elements of the hypothesis in 50 odd years. Uh, again, if other people know otherwise, I'm happy to uh, happy to be informed. Um, so as we know, most coverage of uh, Jacobs, uh, certainly while she was alive, uh, was, uh, has tended to be favorable, 
sorry, apart from the initial period of criticism, um, uh, there's generally, a, a, most quotations probably of Jane Jacobs that are probably, uh, tend to be uncritical of the main hypothesis, um, and the refutations of the central thesis are almost entirely unknown and unheeded, I would say. I've, I've never come across uh, citations to those examples other than following that particular trail of uh, citations. Um, also, I found, curiously, again, uh, when, I, uh, when, when the f this paper came out uh, and I, I had some, uh, some exchanges on an on a, on a, on a, uh, electronic forum, um, I found uh, plenty of people who were willing to give a vociferous defense of Jane Jacobs and her ideas. Um, uh, uh, but uh, very few people were actually uh, interested or concerned with whether or not her hypotheses were, were ever true or not. Um, the argument always went away from, from, uh, uh, from what I was trying to get at to, to, to defending Jane Jacobs and, uh, uh, and, and so on. <coughs> 